How does government propaganda manufacture militarism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Abigail Hall. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Abigail Hall. Abby is an associate professor in economics at Bellarmine University. She's also an affiliated scholar with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and an affiliated scholar with the Foundation for Economic Education. She earned her PhD in economics from George Mason University in 2015. Her broader research interests include Austrian economics, political economy and public choice, defense and peace economics, and institutions and economic development. Her work includes topics surrounding militarism, the U.S. military, and national defense, including domestic police militarization, domestic extremism, arms sales, weapons and foreign aid, the cost of military mobilization, and the political economy of military technology. Her and her co-author wrote Manufacturing Militarism, U.S. Government Propaganda in the War on Terror. That will form the basis of our discussion today. And I should also note that her and her co-author wrote another book as well called Tyranny Comes Home. That was the basis of our last discussion together, which you should also check out. Abby, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And it's great to have you on back, actually, because we recorded a while ago together. Um, but it's, it's nice to see you again. Uh, so we, as you know, we base each episode around a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is... How does government propaganda manufacture militarism? And of course, really what we'll be doing is discussing your book, Manufacturing Militarism, and, and its main points, of course. So I want to start actually with sort of some context setting. The book's about propaganda, ultimately. What do you mean by propaganda? People throw that word around a lot to mean many things. How do you guys go about that in the book? They do. So when we talk about propaganda, um, and my co-author, Chris Coyne, and I actually dedicate a fair amount of time to defining propaganda, talking about its history and what exactly it is that we mean. Um, basically, anyone who is in a contemporary context using the term propaganda is using it pejoratively. So nobody is saying, oh, that's propaganda and not pointing out or not saying, hey, that it's there's something wrong with it, they dislike it. Um, that hasn't always been the case, but that is very much the contemporary usage of the term. In terms of what exactly propaganda is, there is not a universal definition of propaganda. Um, there are some definitions of propaganda that are very, very wide. So things which would basically say like everything is propaganda. So like all advertising, for instance, could be defined as propaganda, depending on how you define it. The way that my co-author and I define propaganda is that it has three core elements. So the first is that the information is purposefully biased, misleading, or false. The second is that the information that is being transmitted is used to promote some kind of political cause. And then the third element is that it's bad from the perspective of the recipient and that it limits their ability to engage in rational decision-making. Um, we acknowledge that government and non-government entities can engage in propaganda under this definition, um, but we are primarily focused on government propaganda in this particular project. Yeah, so, so just to put a finer point on the exact point there, so indeed, like anyone can seemingly produce work and spread it to others that can function like propaganda. But as you said, the book is, and, and what we're going to be talking about today as well is focus on government propaganda. Yes, we are focused in this particular context on government propaganda um, specific to the United States as it relates to the period following 9-11 and the ensuing war on terror. Great. And I'm going to get into a couple more specifics about propaganda, including some of the techniques. But before we get there, as another context thing, I just thought to throw at you as well that, you know, some people seem to like counter or shut down discussion of propaganda in general, especially in the United States, by saying something like, well, it's not like we have a one party state or a dictator brainwashing us every day, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. In other words, you know, people often counter, well, there's varying sources of info people can expose themselves to. So how are we propagandized? But I'm but I'm sure you would say this, this extreme or nothing idea of propaganda is certainly mistaken. Yeah, I don't I don't think that it's um, quite that that stark. Um, and one of the things that we do talk about, particularly with respect to this idea of overlapping 
uh, pieces of information or different information sources. So a lot of times people will talk about news media as being a potential antidote to propaganda. And it certainly can be, but within that broader uh, idea are some really uh serious assumptions about things like the independence of the media, where the information that the media is reporting is coming from. And one of the things that we highlight in the book is that oftentimes these unbiased or these free media sources are actually tied pretty concretely, not saying it's necessarily intentional, but they're tied pretty concretely to actually state actors. And in some cases, the talking points that are being put out by multiple media sources actually have their origins from state actors. Exactly. And and it could be as simple, I guess, as, as also that the state is simply sourcing the information that's then regurgitated by the media as well. So, I mean, that's a whole different way as well. There's a tide. It's not a direct tether, if you will, but it's but it's certainly very tied to similar information sources at times. Sure. And moving on now to the sort of government propaganda, the way it functions and the techniques, obviously, and I'll, and I'll just say, of course, to you and also the listeners that we encourage everyone to, to get the book that we're talking about today. So we can't get into every single detail here, uh, but we can certainly trace some of the high level stuff, but we, we don't have enough time to get to every single aspect. But I did want to actually zone in on an area where you, you lay out the techniques of propaganda, because I think Again, people sort of have this big picture idea of propaganda, but then the way you guys slice it up is, is very interesting when you talk about the different appeals that propaganda uses. So I wanted to talk a bit about what you mean by appeal to authority and appeal to patriotism as being a technique of propaganda and how the government uses it. Sure. So to put this within a bit more context, one of the things that I think is really important to to set out from the beginning is that one of the things that we are interested in doing with this book is talking about the importance of propaganda in democratic societies. Because oftentimes when people talk about propaganda, they think about it going hand in hand with autocratic regimes. So if we talk about you know Kim Jong-un in North Korea, and this is a true story, North Korean media put out this piece that Kim Jong-un invented the burrito. Right. Um, keep in mind that that is a diminutive term in Spanish for little donkey, but nevertheless, you have this North Korean man who's supposedly inventing a burrito and shoots a hole on one and every golf game that he's ever played and so on. Um, we think about that type of propaganda, um, but oftentimes we don't think about propaganda within the context of democratic societies. And so one of the things that we are really interested in pointing out is what components of democratic institutions make those institutions particularly susceptible to propaganda? And then how is that propaganda created and disseminated? And then how does that then impact those democratic institutions that we tend to really like? So in thinking about this propaganda and the propaganda techniques that we see over and over again, you mentioned specifically this idea of appealing to authority and appealing to patriotism. These are techniques that we tend to see repeated um, and so just to define them very, very simply, an appeal to authority is exactly what it sounds like. Um, there is some entity, government in this case, that is there to protect you. So the best example, or maybe an example is particularly helpful, is if you've ever flown in an airport in and out of the United States, you will notice the Transportation Security Administration or the TSA. So you will hear things like, if you don't leave your bags unattended, if you see something, say something. You'll see signage that's posted, you know, telling people about the security procedures that are coming and things like that. Um, and this is very much an authoritative appeal. You have this entity, the government, who is here to protect you. And not only that, but they are the solution to this particular problem. Right. In the case of the TSA, talking about terrorism when you fly. Um, appeal to patriotism is another propaganda technique, which in the context of the United States is placing support or uh, arguing or putting out the message that support for a particular policy or the position of the propagandist is synonymous with being patriotic or being a good citizen. The opposite of that, of course, would be that failure to support that particular policy would make you a bad citizen. So, you know, a good American or a bad American, a good Canadian or a bad Canadian. This reduces, and one of the things that I point out that we see over and over again with all of these various techniques is it's 
a very simplistic reduction of what are often remarkably complicated policies and remarkably complicated policy issues, but distilling them down into something that makes it sound like it's easy. Right. And I guess that's where the the sort of way that this has gone about is also you touch on in the book is like the appeal to simple slogans and images and basically distilling these complex ideas down to something you're either for or against in a very simple distilled way. Right. And when it comes to things like simple signs and slogans and simple images, these are things that have a lot of sticking power. So the best examples that I can give would be things like everybody has probably seen the propaganda poster from the UK, uh, you know, keep calm and carry on. Right. Or if you think about uh, US propaganda, for instance, like everybody has likely seen the sign of Uncle Sam, you know, pointing his finger out through the poster of, you know, I want you to join the US military. We've seen these, they have a lot of they have sticking power. The fact that I can recall these types of examples even prior, um, and other people can probably think of them as well, depending on their own background and context. These are things that are, again, easy easy for us to internalize and easy for us to remember. And and it seems that there's not always at play, but there's most often the sort of us versus them thing at play. So to round off our propaganda techniques, could you talk a bit about how that's utilized? Yes. So this us versus them mentality, again, oftentimes collapses these very, very complex policy issues into something that's very, very simplistic. So the idea is that you separate, as the propagandist, people into in-groups or out-groups. So if you take the context of something like war, the in-group is very easy. It would be the country involved and their allies. The out-group, or them in this case, would be the enemy and their allies. So note that this eliminates any kind of gray area at all, um, and it eliminates any kind of of subtlety or any kind of discussion about, again, that that gray area. It makes people into one of two categories. You're either a good guy or a bad guy. And again, agreeing with the message puts you in the good guy category. Disagreeing with the message puts you in the bad guy category. Right. And we are going to get to uh, the Iraq war and the war on terror more specifically in a second. But of course, as you're saying that, it occurs to me that the sort of with us or with the terrorists example is probably a pretty good one for what you were just saying there. Um, and, and, and I want to talk about how propaganda itself functions and what it ultimately does with those techniques. Cause you cover this in the, in the book as well. And one, again, once we get off some of this context setting stuff, I want to move on to the case studies and so on. But the, the idea that all of this put together ultimately sort of frames information and frames the spectrum of debate. I find very interesting as, especially obviously that that's what the government intends to do. You know, if you read Herman and Chomsky's manufacturing consent, that's what they claim the media is doing, but that's a separate issue. But this idea of framing the spectrum of debate and framing information, I wanted you to talk a little bit about as well and what that means. Sure. So in addition to talking about these propaganda techniques, we talk about these various functions of propaganda. And you mentioned this idea, or one of the things that we talk about in this book, is framing how it is that people think about a particular issue. So it's creating this idea or directing how it is that people are thinking about a particular issue. Again, I think an example is probably particularly helpful. So if you look at the name of like U.S. military operations over the last, say, 20 years, you get a really clear idea of this uh, framing of information. So think about something like Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Inherent Resolve, Operation Valiant Guardian. Note the language that is being used. It's very clear what just these very simple names are attempting to do. They're attempting to get the listener of those names to think about the overarching operation, which, again, is very, very complicated um, and has a lot of geopolitical background context, to think about this in a very particular way. It's valiant. It's protecting freedom. It's guarding the freedom of individuals at home and abroad. So that is a very, I think, simple way of, of conveying that particular element. And, and, and on top of that, uh, the idea of like reinforcing fear, because I guess a lot of this stuff does not necessarily work. Well, I shouldn't say it doesn't work. It doesn't work as well as it could without people actually being fearful of the things, whether it's the us versus them or, or fearful of not being a patriot or whatever. It, it may be, you know, creating a society where people are, in fact, scared of lots of things seems to be one of the functions as well. 
So fear is an important component and something that we talk about not only in in this book, but also within our previous book. Um, And we're building very much in this context off of the work of an economic historian by the name of Robert Higgs. Um, His 1987 book, Crisis and Leviathan, is one that I have read multiple times and will plug it here, there, and everywhere because I think it is so incredibly important. And Higgs talks about there and elsewhere the importance of fear in allowing for these large expansions in terms of scale and scope with government. So fear makes people more permissive of things which would have been non-permissible or would have been inconscionable in other circumstances. Again, I think an example is helpful. If you had told someone in 1995 in the United States that every time they went to an airport, that they would have to separate from their family members in order to go to the gate. And not only that, but their person and their property would be subject to search. In some cases, very intimate searches, which in other contexts would definitely be considered sexual assault. They would have told you that you were absolutely crazy. But now what is the message? Flying is inherently unsafe. You are bound to be attacked by terrorists. By the way, you need to give us your shoes and you also need us to, or you need to allow us to touch you in intimate areas in order to prevent acts of terrorism. This would not have been conceivable, but now is considered very normal. Why is this considered very normal? Why is this permissible? It's because people, people are afraid. So fear absolutely plays a very large part and perpetuating that fear also plays a very large part. So one of the things that we talk about within the book in more detail, again, not to hammer on the TSA for, for too long, but we have some, uh, some data, and we may talk about that in a little bit, to indicate the overall efficacy or complete lack thereof of the TSA, and yet people still acquiesce to this type of treatment on a daily basis. And so then the question is why? It's because people are continuously afraid. And so then the question becomes, well, well, why? Why are people continuously afraid? Absolutely. And as as far as like, you know, you know, a lot of, of course, we framed a lot about how propaganda works and so on. And of course, a lot of people, especially within certain age groups, if they also are relatively speaking younger, um, you know, a lot of their modern consciousness about, you know, uh, the government and so on and so forth, things like the war on terror, like let's let's call the modern conscious for a lot of people, sort of more like a, a post 9-11 type of conscious. But of course, the book does something interesting at the front where it sets the context for, you know, propaganda, of course, is not something new. And it's not just specific to the uh, the war on terror or, or, you know, the invasion of Iraq and so on and so forth. And of course, we don't want to go all the way back to 1776. But let's talk a bit about the modern, if you will, quote unquote, conscious propaganda efforts by the government, you know, like, let's say, at, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, all, all that to say, it, it, of course, it was very interesting to learn your book, there seems to have been agencies and bureaus responsible for getting the quote, right information to people for, for quite some time. This isn't just a post 9-11 thing is what I'm getting at. Sure. So in the historical context, and we do spend a little bit of time on this in the book, but we don't belabor the point, um, is that the big difference between like historical propaganda within the United States and contemporary propaganda is that if you go back further in U.S. history, so you look at the colonial period, you go up through um, the Civil War and beyond that, you do have propaganda, but it's very much decentralized. So you don't have like a central government agency that's responsible. This changes during World War I and World War II. Now we talk about the creation of centralized agencies and then the subsequent disbanding of said agencies. Um, And then you go after the World War II period and you actually have the implementation of what's referred to as the Smith-Munt Act, which uh, is intended to ban the dissemination of domestic propaganda. So in the United States, government is not supposed to be propagandizing or uh, sharing propaganda with its own citizens. Now, that is not the case if you are looking at the United States engaged in activities abroad, um, and frankly, based on this book and then uh, based on what we talk about, it's not actually not happening in the United States either, but at least in theory, not supposed to be occurring within within the United States. Um, We also talk about and this is important for the context of discussing the war on terror in particular, we talk about how these these pieces of propaganda are really perpetuated or founded on a couple of important 
issues or a couple important factors. So one is the fact that you have this intense information asymmetry with respect to government policy. So ideally, in an idealized state, we have symmetric information. So citizens who are voting and politicians know the same information. We also have this idealized state where government actors are only undertaking activity to the extent that it benefits the population as a whole, right? So there's some broader social welfare function. Uh, Politicians work to maximize that social welfare function. In reality, however, we know that we don't live in an idealized state. Um, Politicians know more information than oftentimes their constituents do. You have uh, bureaus who know information that people don't. So you have these overlapping information asymmetries. You also have a variety of principal agent problems. So a principal agent problem for people who are unfamiliar is what happens when you separate ownership of an asset from control of the asset. So you could think about that in a business context Mm -hmm. as something like um, the owners of the company are different than the managers of the company. Um, You would hope that their interests align, but they don't always align. Right. Within the political context, information asymmetries, or sorry, uh, principal agent problems uh, manifest themselves within the context of politicians and voters. So ideally, politicians are supposed to be acting on behalf of the voters, but we know that they don't always do that. But you also have principal agent problems between politicians and bureaus and bureaucrats. So bureaucrats are supposed to be undertaking action at the behest of politicians who are supposed to be representing the voters, but we see that those don't always happen. We also need to highlight, or I think it's important to highlight, that within the context of war and with foreign policy more generally, there's not just all of these standard public choice problems or what we call public choice problems, but there is a huge overarching veil of secrecy when it comes to anything related to defense and national security. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we talk about and the reason that I wanted to point this out, because we mentioned specifically within the history of propaganda, you see a big change occur after, I said again, that World War I, World War II, where you start to see this increased secrecy, particularly within the realm of national security. So we use the example of U.S. security clearances, Um, or if you've ever seen like a James Bond movie, you know, think about the file on the desk that says like, you know, top secret or something like that. Um, It used to be that most things were not classified. Um, Now, you could imagine, for instance, that like you wouldn't want your troop movements in times of war to be publicly available knowledge. Mm -hmm. But effectively, what happens within the World War II period is that it becomes much, much easier to conceal information. And it's very difficult for people to get that information um, freed up or to declassify that information. So you wind up with this huge... um, veil of secrecy, which further complicates these issues that we we talk about with respect to, again, information asymmetry and those principal agent problems. So not only are the people, you know, having less access to the information that they could have, uh, there, there's also agencies and, and efforts actively also ensuring they get the right version of the information on top of that. Right. And so one of the things that we talk about is that you have these agencies who are able to decide when to release information and what information to release. So in some cases, and we highlight one example of a journalist who's interested in getting information about a government bureau conducting a counterterrorism policy. And it takes him years. I think it was something like seven or eight years for um, them to finally acquiesce to a Freedom of Information Act request, or what's often referred to as just a FOIA request. Um, and when they finally did respond they included an unsolicited cover letter, which basically talked about, well, like here's some data, not the most recent data available, but here's some subset of the data, but this is already outdated and we've made all of these changes. We're not going to tell you what these changes are, but we're going to include this very, this narrow piece of data way long after you've asked for it. And we're going to include a narrative along with it. And so it effectively prevents not just this agency, but it's an illustrative example. It prevents citizens from being able to 
engage with government in a way that you have those checks and balances that we like in a democratic institution. But it's not just citizens who are prohibited from getting that information, but it's also policymakers who are oftentimes unable to get this information too. Right. And so you have, again, just these kind of overlapping layers of problems. And that's actually an excellent place to take our break because we're about at that time now. So we're going to do so. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task, and I'm speaking with Abby Hall today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Vincent Geloso, Joe Aragona, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task and speaking with Abby Hall today. So, Abby, I think the first half of our conversation on propaganda was great. We covered a lot of the uh, techniques of propaganda. We covered the functions. We also discussed the United States and a bit of the history of how the propaganda is serving them and how they're going about it. Uh, I want to actually move ahead, just as your book does, and talk about some some of the case studies and applications, specifically connecting this to the invasion of Iraq and the war on terror. Um, and I, as I mentioned in the first half, and I always mention again for our listeners, we are not going to be able to cover everything here by any means. So we're getting a trace of it please go check out the book for yourself because there is a lot of great detail in there so i'm not going to quiz abby on every single page it's really just to get an idea of what's going on so abby i did want to throw it to you to talk about the invasion of iraq because ultimately in the conclusion part of that section of the book you say quote the bush administration's propaganda was integral to rallying popular support behind the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So again, without going page by page, I was wondering if you can sort of unpack that backwards a bit and really talk about how the invasion of Iraq was was sold, first of all, because I think that's a very sure. good case study. So so in the case study, so we, we dedicate two chapters to talking about Iraq, and I'll talk about why we wound up splitting that up into two chapters momentarily, because it wasn't two in the beginning. Um, we also talk about the TSA. We discuss propaganda in, uh, in film as well. Um, and so one of the, one of the things that, that we talk about is how it is that propaganda is used in some context to generate support for a particular conflict. So see the war in Iraq. And then in other cases um, is used to generate um, or foster a culture of militarism. So in the chapter that we talk about film and also in the chapter where we talk about propaganda in U.S. sports, that is more of the, the latter category. So these first two chapters related to the U.S. invasion of Iraq um, or the buildup to it, I should say. And then the second chapter looking at what happened after the U.S. invaded Iraq are illustrations of propaganda campaigns intended to foster support for a particular uh, policy, in this case, the, the intervention of the United States into Iraq. So in this, these two chapters, we were able to do something interesting because in order for us to really illustrate the presence of propaganda, we have to show a disconnect between what was being offered to the public and what was known to officials at the time that this information was being disseminated. Because now, obviously, we know a lot more than we did in, you know, 2000, 2001. But we want to know, okay, what did people know at the time? So what we do in these, this first chapter related to Iraq is we go through and we talk about what was offered to the American public as the impetus or the rationale as to why they should support the Bush administration intervening in, in Iraq. So, and it's interesting when I talk about this now, because I mentioned people like um, Donald Rumsfeld and Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, and my students have no idea who I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so um, if people are unfamiliar, a quick like Google Wikipedia search will help bring them up to speed. Um, but we look at things like, um, the suggestion that Saddam Hussein was connected to Al-Qaeda, which was patently ridiculous on his face. Um, 
Saddam Hussein was a secularist. So the idea that he is involved with like a radical Muslim group just is weird from the beginning. So we talk about those supposed claims. We talk about the supposed existence of weapons of mass destruction. So people may or may not remember the, um, you know, Iraq purchasing the quote unquote aluminum tubes, which could have been used in, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction. So we we talk about the regime, not saying Saddam Hussein was a nice guy. He wasn't. But talking about, again, what was sold and then what was known to the administration. And what we see over and over again is that the information that was known was not the information that was presented. So for instance, you have um, this instance where uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney goes on television. He talks about... Um, officials from Iraq meeting with a uh, terrorist operative by the name, uh, the name is escaping me right now, but he, the short version is that they said, oh, he was meeting with them in this European country at the time, which was impossible because the FBI had this person detained in Florida at the time this meeting was supposed to take place. Right. So they, they know that this happened. Um, we also talk about um, this, uh, in, like the process of how it is that the government worked with media. So we mentioned kind of at the top, this idea that media is supposed to be independent. Um, we talk about a variety of different examples where you have, and this was occurring not only prior to the invasion, but also post invasion, but talking about uh government officials who would provide information to say like newspapers. So something like the New York times. So the New York times would like run this story with this particular piece of information. And then officials in the Bush administration would then go on again, like television and radio, and they would cite the New York times article as the source of the material. When the New York times had gotten that information from white house officials. So we have this dynamic that we talk about. And the reason that we wound up splitting it into two chapters was because we found that it really was two different stories. Because after the U.S. invades Iraq in 2001, or sorry, after the U.S. invades Iraq in 2003, you really do see this shift in, in narrative because it became very clear very quickly that even though in short order, President Bush goes on an aircraft carrier off the coast of California, talk about propaganda with the banner mission accomplished right. behind him. It became very clear very quickly, oh, hey, this actually is going to be a lot longer than what we were led to believe. And now we have to have another narrative to talk about why it is that you should still support this particular conflict. So that's the, the those first two chapters really digging into the details and, again, talking about that disconnect between what was known, what was presented, and then also an illustration of exactly how that misinformation was disseminated. And could you talk a little bit more about what exactly that pivot point was because there, and in terms of what sort of continuing on and, and the continuing cell was? Because the story changed as well, right? I mean, there was a lot of the weapons of mass destruction talk and the reason to invade uh, at, at the beginning part. But then a lot of it sort of shifted gears towards the, you know, the, the war on terrorism aspect and broadened the context for why they were doing all the things they were doing in the Middle East. Right. And really the, the, the flip point was, was the invasion and the fact that you, we, the you, the American public was, and I'm I'm old enough to remember the the U.S. invasion. I think I said two thousand I'm, I I remember this because I remember like sitting on the couch with my dad, listening to him, listening to President Bush. I mean, tell Saddam Hussein and his two sons that they had seventy two hours to leave Iraq or the U.S. was going to invade. Right. And I remember like thinking of like, okay, like we're going to war with Iraq, but even as a little kid of like, but you know, it's supposed to be short, but then all of a sudden you realize really quickly, it's like, oh, well, Hey, all of those weapons of mass destruction that like we were supposed to find when we invaded, like don't appear to be there. And these other things that we were told don't appear to be true. So as you rightly point out, then the narrative has to change. So we talk about again, this broader or fostering this broader support for not just this continued evasion of Iraq, but this broader war on terror. And so then this kind of leads into some of the other chapters where we talk about this fostering of not only that as a policy, broadly speaking, but also fostering this broader militaristic culture 
within the United States. Right. And we will touch on that in a sec. But before we leave specifically the the invasion of Iraq and the war on terror in general, I, I just wanted to point out as well that it, it seems to me uh, that, the, that the worst thing many people would ever dare call the invasion of the Iraq is, is sort of a, a mistake or a misstep. And I know a lot of people go farther than that. Um, but let's talk about like in, in the mainstream opponents, if you will, of sort of the uh, uh, of the invasion of Iraq. You know, this is very similar as well to the way that the Vietnam War was handled in many pockets of the public conscious. Like even the you know so-called opposition in the New York Times and op-eds, you can find people talking about, you know, um, stumbling efforts to do good and bumbling missteps and mistakes and all that kind of stuff. Very, very tactical ultimately but not errors of principle or bad intention in other words in many narratives the u.s is never sort of the quote the bad guy i'm just wanting to know what your opinion is is that fact in and of itself regardless if one would agree or not with the opinion being displayed but is that fact in and of itself an indication of the successful propaganda element we were talking about before about framing the issue because it seems like you can only go so far in mainstream criticism even of things even if the quote criticism is is accepted there is something really interesting about that and talking about how far it is that you you can take criticism. And that's something I've actually thought about quite a bit. And I think it's different speaking from uh, from the U.S. context. And I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen. I've grown up in the United States. Um, and thinking about my experience in criticizing the military versus, say, my parents, who are both in their late 60s. So they remember, for instance, members of the U.S. military who had been drafted into Vietnam coming home and and being spit on, for instance. Right. Uh, That's not something I remember. So they are a lot less likely for for a number of reasons, but that would be one of them to criticize the military than than I would be. Um, Whereas in I remember distinctly in, in college seeing a bumper sticker that did not make any sense to me, which said, support the troops, end the war. And I remember finding this like very strange because it was like, well, what do you mean support the troops, but, but end the war? These are the individuals who are voluntarily carrying out this, this mission. No, no one has conscripted them. But they've they've agreed they've agreed to, to to do this. This was literally what they signed up for, um, and so one of the things that you find, particularly within the United States, um, is that criticizing the military is a uh, it, it it is I think in a lot of contexts like an act of bravery because it really is like the sacred cow in the United States, where even if you are someone who is generally very critical of U.S. foreign policy. Criticizing the U.S. military is something that that a lot of people don't don't do, or they will do that like again, what I think is a patently bizarre double step of wanting to support members of the military, but criticize like the overarching head of the military, not recognizing again that people have elected to do this voluntarily. Right, that makes sense. And and, and shift and further actually into you're talking about the sort of the sacred cow, if you will, the way you put it. I, I was I think we connected connected to this idea, which is that I you know I was happy to see in the book because it's something that I often talk about and think about as well. So it's great to actually see it laid out properly by you folks when you investigated formally, which is you know government propaganda's connection to sports in the U.S. particularly uh, football. So I just want to know like here again we can't go through everything, but can you talk at least about at the high level about the militarization of sports, particularly football. And other things that service that sort of government agenda when it comes to just what is supposed to be ultimately a popular culture thing, right? We're not, you know, it seems there there's there's more there that meets the eye than just like, you know, honoring people when it comes to the way that, that this connection is between military and government and, and sports. Sure. So I, I think when you write a book, like you're supposed to love all of your chapters equally. Um, but I if I to tip my hat, I think the chapter on sports propaganda was maybe one of my favorite chapters to research and and to work on um, because it was a fascinating, um, largely infuriating, um, but I learned I learned a whole lot. And so, if you have ever been or watched any kind of U.S. sporting event, so if you have watched as you mentioned, U.S. Uh, football, if you've watched Major League Baseball, if you watch Major League Soccer, what everybody else on the planet calls football, um, or if you watch NASCAR, um, or if you watch NHL hockey. So that's the, the big thing that we're watching in our house, for instance. 
you have undoubtedly, especially if you've ever intended one, you have seen some appreciation of the military. So you'll see, you know, on-field enlistment ceremonies, surprise homecomings for U.S. military personnel, full field flag displays, flyovers, like the, the list goes on and on and on. And in this chapter, we primarily focus on two things. So all of those things that I just mentioned, a lot of times people see that, they feel very good, they feel very patriotic, um, and they're like, oh, look, my favorite sports franchise is supporting the men and women of the U.S. military. What they don't know is that those items have historically, at least, been bought and paid for by the U.S. Department of Defense in what is known as paid patriotism, which is just a very nice window dressing term for propaganda. Um, There was a report that came out in 2012 from the late Senator John McCain and Jeff Flake's office out of the state of Arizona, which talks about paid patriotism, breaks down the millions of dollars that went to various sports franchises. So again, all of those major sports enterprises that I mentioned um, to engage in these quote unquote patriotic displays. Now, of course, the people watching this have no idea that those were actually paid for by the Department of Defense. But in thinking about what it is that this does, um, and we talk about this in much, much more finer detail in the book about what exactly this does, but it fosters this overall culture of militarism and sets expectations. So one of the things that uh, we talk about, for instance, and there's a really nice example in, in the book from a journalist who was very much from the beginning against um, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And he talks about going to a major league baseball game with his adult son, and his adult son does not want to stand during, I can't remember if it was like the national anthem or some like honor to the military, you know, stand up and clap type of thing. And he looks at his son and he's like, hey, like, don't make it awkward or like, don't, let's not have a problem here because what is the expectation? The expectation is, is that you're going to stand up and clap when they tell you to stand up and clap. And being a person who is remaining seated during the standing military salute, having been this person, I can tell you that socially it is very awkward because you're breaking the the expectation. Um, And so it's a very effective propaganda tool. One of the other things that we talk about in the chapter um, specifically is how particular individuals within this sports context have been used as a propaganda tool. And so we spend quite a bit of time talking about the um, death of a man by the name of Pat Tillman. So Tillman had been drafted into the National Football League to play uh, by the Arizona Cardinals. And so he was playing um, the war on terror starts. He feels compelled to join the U.S. military. He becomes part of uh, the Army Rangers, which is an elite military unit, um, and he's killed in action. Now, it's known almost immediately that he was killed by an act of fratricide. So friendly fire would mm-hmm. be the, the other term. So he's killed by his other army rangers as opposed to enemy combatants. This is known almost immediately. Um, but then also almost immediately, you see not only this information that his death was fratricide going up the chain of military command, but you also see a remarkable number of breaches of military protocol and covering up this information. Um, and how this was sold to Pat Tillman's family, how this was sold to the U.S. public, was that he had been killed in a firefight with enemy combatants. And we talk about that entire episode, what finally led to the real information coming out. Um, Interestingly enough, the information that it was, quote-unquote, probably fratricide, even though there was no probable about it, um, was released on a Friday afternoon before a major holiday weekend when a lot of reporters would have already gone home so that the reporting on it would be would be minimal. Classic. Um, but we yes, but we also talk about how that is still used in a contemporary context. So looking at uh, former President Trump tweeting about Pat Tillman and Pat Tillman as being this, um, you know, kind of. Uh, 
pinnacle of U.S. like military personnel. Um, and then the subsequent pushback from, uh, say, like Marie Tillman, so Pat Tillman's widow, um, and how he's essentially been used as, as a propaganda tool. Um, but sport, in addition to those two very specific instances, talking about and thinking about what it is that sports does, if you note the language that gets used, particularly in um, American football, you know, they talk about like bombs and blitzes and like the red zone, like referring, these are all military terms. So what this effectively does is it collapses these intense foreign policy, literally like life and death policies mm-hmm. into something that people watch for entertainment on a Sunday. It's remarkably powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're certainly not the only ones who have ever talked about and addressed sports propaganda. We build on a really um, fascinating literature that talks about sports propaganda. But what's unique about our approach is, again, the application, so where it is that we're applying it, but then also to bringing that political economy lens to talking about what it is that this propaganda does and then the ultimate implications of it. Right. And I'm just keeping an eye on the time here. I'm going to move us ahead, but still connecting the idea to, you know, let's say someone wants wants a break from uh, football and they say, I've had enough of that propaganda. I want to go see a movie. It seems like we can't even go there without being subjected to some level of propaganda of the kind we're talking about. No, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) So most most people, of course, recognize that American movies will lean pro-American, right? Like, you know, someone will, of course, say, you know, Abby and Alex, stop talking now. I get it. If a scriptwriter in America writes something like, you know, a script and it gets directed, you know, they're going to be culturally biased towards Americans. But, you know, it it goes deeper than a little bit of patriotism on the, the, uh, you know, the side of writers, directors, it seems. So can you talk a bit about the connection between intentional government propaganda and that whole system and then the Hollywood movie system. Yes. So we, we spend a chapter talking about propaganda and film. And so, um, as you know, as you noted, if somebody is, uh, you know, from the United States and they are making a movie, they might be inclined to make a movie that is sympathetic to, to U.S. policy position. But that's certainly not always the case. Um, and in fact, we have a variety of instances of people attempting to make thoughtful or thought-provoking, let's say, or sometimes maybe even uh, films that are critical of U.S. foreign policy. But those films sometimes don't get made, or if they do, they get made, but the message has changed. Mm-hmm. So starting, and we talk about the history of the linkages between Hollywood and government. Um, but in a contemporary context, let's say that I want to make a movie about um, war. Or let's, very, very relevant contemporary example. Um, let's say that I'm making the Top Gun sequel, and I want to use military aircraft, um, that's very expensive. <laughs> that That is not a cheap proposition. But there is a way that I could use military uh, equipment, even military personnel. I can do that. And I can do it at low cost or potentially zero cost to my studio. I'd be interested in that. That really helps my bottom line as a movie producer. So what do I have to do? I have to send my script to the Department of Defense. And the Department of Defense gets an editorial commentary, let's say. And they get to decide whether or not they provide support or they don't provide support. So we document examples where you have original scripts that get sent to the Department of Defense and are kicked back with suggestions, additions, deletions, things like that to make films, and not just films, but also television shows, um, more sympathetic to the U.S. military's position. In some cases, this includes entire scenes being cut, entire characters being cut, entire plot lines being cut. And people might think, well, okay, but like, if you're the military, like, why would you want to support a film that is critical? And I mean, that's exactly the case, um, is that the uh, man who was responsible for this for decades, who has since retired, and um, it's not entirely clear as who replaced him, um, a guy by the name of Phil Straub, he's been really candid with respect to his bias or what was his bias um, toward films that showed a pro-U.S., pro-military 
pro-U.S. foreign policy mm-hmm. position that he says something like, I wouldn't be able to like sleep at night if I granted assistance to films that were critical. So note what it is that this does. This effectively severely restricts or maybe even altogether eliminates films, which, and again, not just films, but also TV shows. And we provide a, a list in in the book of exactly what these movies and TV shows have historically been. And they're not necessarily ones that you would expect. Um, for instance, if you've ever watched like an episode of Lassie um, or Wonder Woman, or you've watched a cooking show that was produced in the United States, if you ever watched America's Next Top Model like 10 years ago, all of these, um, they have had, they've, they've utilized DOD resources in exchange for the DOD having a say in the editorial process. Right. And so again, we see the information that is being presented in the form of entertainment is not necessarily information that was the original intent of even the people who wrote the film. The um, example that we open that chapter with, for instance, um, it's a film by uh, the title of wind talkers actually originally had a, um, a critical or at least a somewhat thoughtful message about the U.S. military. But in order to obtain funding, they acquiesced to the demands of the DOD. Right. And one thing that strikes me about both the sports case and the Hollywood film system case as well is that, you know, and you were touching on towards the end there, is like the level of integration of partnership between, you know, the Department of Defense or the military uh, personnel and the people and the large studios and all their people making movies, you know, whereas maybe decades and decades ago when film was just in its infancy, they might chuck you know, chuck a, like a newsreel or a propaganda reel in front of your feature film before you then go watch, you know, Casablanca or something. At least that was a little more honest. Now we have like a deeper integration of, you know, I mean, obviously Top Gun's a pretty on, on the nose, but in other cases, it's more more subtle. And, and you know, and these movies are also mainstream movies too, right? They're not necessarily New York art films. So they're meant to make people feel good to begin with, have a good time, not think too much. And on top of that, you get all this messaging in that right. vehicle if you, as well. If you want an example that's a little bit less, um, that is not quite on the nose because Top Gun, the the sequel, is you know a, a film about the U.S. military. Take Transformers and the Transformers franchise. These films have received the most support from the DoD of any film franchise in history to date. Um, They featured nearly every branch of the U.S. military, as well as a variety of military hardware. Um, And this isn't a film that's even about U.S. foreign policy, but nevertheless integrates the U.S. military as this like force for global good, because you have, you know, the the you're, you're trying to defeat the Decepticons, which, of course, you know, don't actually exist, but like, hey, like we're going to call the U.S. military. So it's still portraying the U.S. military in a positive light. And one of the things that I think is important to point out, it's true in sports when we talk about sports propaganda, but particularly within the context of film, people have levied the criticism of like, well, this sounds all very conspiratorial, like film studios and the DOD are conspiring to like, you know, put propaganda in the faces of the U.S. public. Same thing with you know, the Department of Defense and the National Football League. But it's not a conspiracy. It's very simple economics. The incentives are quite clear. So if you're a film studio who is trying to make money on a film and you have a way that you can cut millions of dollars from your budget by cooperating with the Department of Defense, you face a really strong incentive to do that. You might not be able to make a profitable film if you don't. And so the incentives are clearly aligned. From the perspective of the DOD, the incentives also make sense. They want to put the message out. They want a message that makes them look good. And they have the ability in the case of film and television to be able to do that by saying like, hey, we have these resources that are available for you to use. But in exchange for those resources, we expect a particular message or we want you to change your message to something that we're okay with. And as and as our time winds down here, I'm just going to move us on to our, our last question before the formal wrap up. And really, I just obviously the book, you know, has its own conclusions and it lists some solutions and so on and so forth. But just for the sake of our conversation uh, today, beyond the details that are sort of in the book at the back end, as far as solutions, 
let me ask you, so what do we do about all this? What would you encourage a listener really to take away as far as like how they should deal with the world in such a way if they know now that this is all happening, whether this sharpens their idea of it or it's new to them? You know, what should someone try to actually think about all these issues and get the quote, the real information do when they hear about all this? It's, it's a tricky question. And one of the things that when when we're asked about solutions, and I, I feel comfortable speaking for, for my co-author, Chris, and I, is that we're actually remarkably democratic in the, in, the, in the following way. We place a really heavy burden on citizens to check what it is that their government is doing. And so one of the things that I would encourage, and I, I encourage this with my students on a regular basis, I want people to be able to throw the flag on stuff that just doesn't pass the smell test and for people to be skeptical of the information that they receive. Ultimately, one of the things that we talk about is the critically important role that citizen ideology plays on not just talking about the context of propaganda, but we talk about this elsewhere too. It's those core beliefs that people hold that ultimately allow or disallow particular government activities. And so if people were truly um, insistent on information and on a more, say, restrictive or restrained, let's say, U.S. foreign policy, that is a prerequisite, I think, for any type of meaningful change. But on an individualized level, I think knowing about it, being skeptical about it, and talking to other people about that information is personally particularly helpful. I know when I've talked to people, for instance, about the relationship between the DOD and the NFL, um, people are surprised. Um, Even though this was a news story in like 2012, it was not particularly well publicized. And shockingly to me, People criticized the NFL, but not the DOD. It was like, how dare the National Football League teams take that money from the Department of Defense? Not wanting to put any blame whatsoever on the DOD. Right. And so I think for at an individual level, recognizing or taking the information that you are receiving about policy with not just a grain of salt, but like a tablespoon And then talking about and asking really critical questions of government about government policy and questioning, I think, other people when they also like talk about these things as though they are objective facts. I think that all of those things are helpful. Absolutely. And with that, I'm going to move us ahead to our our formal wrap-up. So, Abby, we've talked about a lot in each episode. I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word to really bring everything full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me now officially ask you our last question, our wrap-up question, which is, at the end of the day, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on how government propaganda manufactures militarism? In other words, if you wanted someone to take away one, two, or just a few things from everything we've talked about, if anything... What's that thing you'd like to leave them with? So in, in the book, we talk about the consequences of propaganda, short-term and long-term. Short-term propaganda is problematic because it influences the types of policies that people support or don't support, even if what, even, let's say, supporting a policy. So propaganda, if somebody supports a policy, they might support something even if it is not within their own best interest. That's a short-term consequence. But a long-term consequence of propaganda, this continued misinformation, is that it effectively undermines those foundational principles of a democracy, particularly the checks and balances on, on government. And so I would want people to take away that propaganda is something to be concerned about, not just in autocratic societies, but also in democratic societies. The other thing that I really would want people to start thinking about is the pervasiveness of this type of propaganda. Because while we focus on the democracy that is the United States, this is not exclusive to the United States. Um, One of the reasons that we focus on the U.S. is not only its current geopolitical position 
but it's the cases that we're going to know probably most intimately because we, my co-author and I are both U.S. citizens. We have a dog in that fight. We know the history really well. But I have every confidence that somebody who is more um, competent in, say, Canadian history than I would might be able to come up with some particularly salient examples in the Canadian context. And same thing for people who, who live abroad. And then the third and final thing, and this is something that I'm thinking about a lot, and I don't have any kind of really concrete framework for thinking about at this point, is something I mentioned a few minutes ago, is that importance or the importance of ideology. Because one of the things that I mentioned in that book by, by Robert Higgs, uh, you know, kind of at the top, top of our conversation, Higgs in Crisis and Leviathan talks about ideology as being an important prerequisite for these types of expansions in, in government, which oftentimes we see propaganda coming along for the ride or propaganda as being a method through which those incursions are, are pushed through. And so I want to encourage people to start thinking more about ideology. It's not a dirty word, but what, what is your ideology? How is ideology formed? How does ideology change? And then how does that get operationalized into maybe undoing some of these things that we've seen occurring in the last 20 years, particularly as it relates to the war on terror? I think that's a great place to end it. So we'll leave it there. Abigail Hall, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.